everybody. Terry Welbrock here again. Just wanted to take a second to remind you that I will be releasing three online courses. I'm so excited about this. The one day will be released sometime in the next few days. I think I said that last week, but I keep adding stuff because I'm so excited. And the 10 day and the 30 day will be on pre-sale at special pricing and will be available as soon as I finish completion of development of the of the courses. And again, I keep adding stuff because I'm so excited. So anyway, just wanted to give you a heads up on that and uh, get the buzz out that uh, these courses will soon be available. All right, now for the show. Welcome everybody to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and so incredibly blessed and happy to have back with me for a third time, Sarah Payton. And um, yeah, so welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Terry. I'm very happy to be with you. Yes, I've loved our conversations in the past. I've learned so much from you. I know our first interview has just been so well received by my audience. It's in the top downloaded on both audio and video. Uh, just such a beautiful message. And I tell everyone every time I talk about you, I just love your gentle spirit. I love your, there's something that just, I'm just drawn to you and, and your posts that you put out are just so filled with peace and tranquility. And um, yeah, I don't know. You just, you help me catch my breath every time we talk. <laughs> <laughs> what a marvelous recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's coming from the heart and so very true. So you, exciting news, have a another book coming out and you're yes. going to talk about that today. So yeah. yeah. We uh, the new book is the Your Resident Self Workbook, so it it continues that exploration of neuroscience and self compassion. I was I, I was traveling around the world teaching before COVID. I was traveling around the world teaching people, talking to them about self warmth, and so many people were blocked. It was like they were like, okay, I get the theory. But I just can't do it. I'm not worth it. I, I, I don't matter that much. It's selfish of me to have warmth for myself. And I thought, what's going on here? And I began to work with the idea that, because I always love the idea that we make sense no matter what. Like, if this makes sense, if it makes sense for people not to have warmth for themselves. What kind of sense does it make if it's in integrity for them not to have warmth for themselves? What, what's happening there? Because people's brains are just little sense-making machines. And, um, and so I kind of had stumbled across this idea. It came really from the world of family constellations. Bert Hellinger, used the phrase, no matter the cost to myself in the early days of family constellations. And Stefan Hausner, who's a very well-known naturopath and constellations facilitator in Europe and Germany, he wrote a book called, Even If It Costs Me My Life. And this of course is a little bit what Gabor Mate is talking about when he's talking about the way that we get sick if we are not able to say no. And, and so what I started to do was to say, what if we made a promise to ourselves? What if we made a solemn vow to ourselves 
that kept us in a position of not believing that it was okay to have self-warmth for ourselves. How would that make sense? And, and so when I started to ask people, you know, if you're saying to yourself, I, Sarah, solemnly swear to my own sort of central being, my own essential self, I swear to myself that I will not like myself that I will not step into a full juicy relationship of affection with myself in order to, and those words are so important, the in order to, and then you stop and you kind of reach into your body with your attention, you let your attention go into your torso and feel the block, like to feel the refusal. I'm not gonna have a warm, juicy relationship with Sarah. So you feel that refusal and you go, oh, It's in order to stay with my mom and dad who had no idea what a warm, juicy relationship with self would have been like. If I go there, if I go into that territory of sweetness, uh, they've been dead for 10 years, but I leave them and I don't want to leave them. I want my mom and dad with me. So I will not have warmth for myself in order to stay with my mom and dad who did not have warmth for themselves, no matter the cost to myself. So then that phrase that came from Constellations, that came from Stefan Hausner, that is very alive in Gabor Mate's work, that phrase, no matter the cost to myself. Now we want to know what's the cost? What is this costing me that I'm refusing this final step of delight in Sarah's being? It's costing, it has a cost in my health, it has a cost in my access to joy, it has a cost to my life energy. Do I want to keep it? And since I've made this vow to myself, I get to ask. It's not like I've made it to some disappearing invisible entity. I've made this contract with myself. So I get to say, Sarah, what's, what do you want to do here? Do you want to keep this vow? Essential, central, essential being of Sarah, do you want to keep this vow? And that part of me says, no, that's old. That's so old. Let's let go of that one. I release you from this vow. I revoke this contract. And instead, I give you my blessing to step into, at least like to just shoot for once a day, to step into a sense of bubbles of delight. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like sitting on the front porch and forgetting we had a podcast interview. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. What a beautiful reason not to have a podcast interview. It's very good. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, and as you talk, well, one, I love it when I get goosebumps during a conversation because I, I certainly had some going on on my arm and I, I had a gut reaction as you talked and, and wow. I felt it come up and mine was, mine was protection to protect oh. myself. And oh. so, because I, I think I still carry some, some, well, I, I don't even want to say, I think, I, I guess I know on a soul level, uh, some guilt of, almost allowing the bad things that happened to me to happen as if I was somehow to blame that shame factor. Um, And so, yeah, I don't want to allow myself to have it because I need to protect me from me. If that makes any sense. It makes total sense. Yeah. And if we ask your central essential being, essential being of Terry, do you like this vow? 
Yeah, no, I was releasing, <laughs> releasing it in my head as you talked. Oh, good. <laughs> what was your blessing for yourself? Exactly your words. Like oh, I was, I was head because they were so beautiful and they were resonating with me. Oh, I was so happy. You had fun. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. There's this incredible thing with humans, which we may have spoken of before, but I think it's always worth speaking of, which is that when when we have joy and other people have less joy than we have or smile smaller than we do, then there's a cortisol hit for our bodies. It's like there's a, this word punishment is such an interesting word because there is like a neurophysiological punishment that comes for us as humans when we are more joyful than our surroundings are willing to to, in, to enjoy with us. And it happens re- when we're really small. Uh, Beatrice Beebe's research, she's a researcher in New York City. Her work shows that by the age of four months, we, we let go of any emotions that our moms cannot reflect with ease. And, and, and the part of the reason that we do that is because it is punishing to step into something that our most beloved people can't do with us. It is it is a it is a shame hit when we when we go beyond the capacity, the emotional capacity for accompaniment of the people in our circle. Yeah, that makes so much sense of how many people will rein themselves in, almost like apologetically pull themselves in. Yeah. Uh, as if they you just don't want to shine that bright or have that radiating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so many people pull themselves in and so many people leave childhood with the conviction that they're too much. I am too much. Yeah. And it's a neurobiological truth. We were more joyful or more alive than our parents' culture could allow them to engage in with us. Wow, you have my head, you have my head going. And I'm thinking more of my mom, who's mm. just always been such a radiant, beautiful light. Mm. And she was really, really told that she couldn't be that. That wow. and and she was it wasn't that she reined herself in because she's always just let it <laughs> I think somehow <laughs> she broke free from that. So she must have not had that contract with herself. <laughs> That's so um, good. But yeah, they they did. They tried to gate that in, and uh, it didn't work. <laughs> Very cool, awesome. So now this this workbook. Do people have to read? I mean, does it coincide? Should they read both books together, or is it read the first book and then do the second? It. I think you can start with the second one, okay. and if you like it, then you can get the first one too because they're kind of marvelous together. And the neuroscience information is so helpful. And book one becomes even more effective as we start to clear the contracts that book two is talking about. So in book two, we go through uh, all the different different systems that seem to affect relationship that show up in the world of relational neuroscience. So we go through um, 
all of Yakpanksep's circuits, his circuits of emotion and motivation. Yakpanksep was this wonderful researcher. He's the fellow who discovered that rats laugh when you tickle them. They're, <laughs> making, a <laughs> They're making a sound that's out, it's above the range of our hearing, but they they make this wonderful sound and they're giggling and they'll they'll run around if a researcher puts their hand in a in in a little rat enclosure and makes their fingers make a tickling motion the rats will run up against the fingers and stay there for a minute and laugh and laugh and then they'll run around and then they'll come back and lean up against and be tickled again and laugh and laugh so it's what yak punksep's invitation to us was his invitation was that we are part of the mammalian world. We are indistinguishable, except for our prefrontal cortex, from the emotions and motivations that drive all mammals. And, and when we start to understand that, then we begin to claim all kinds of wonderful things for ourselves. Uh, when we understand that we all have a rage circuit, it's supposed to be there. It's not a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing. It's not supposed to be erased. Sometimes people, you know, use their contracts to make their rage circuits disappear. And the thing about that is that the only way to diminish the rage circuit. It's life-serving, it's supposed to be there. We're supposed to be able to take action to protect ourselves and our loved ones. We're supposed to be able to link our rage with our love and be advocates and strong allies and activists in ways that do not burn us out, in ways that just replenish us and nourish us because we know the importance and the meaning of what we're doing in the world. But many people have had trauma experiences with anger gone wrong. And when they have trauma experiences with anger gone wrong, they start to make contracts with themselves. I will never be angry in order not to be, not to be harmful the way that my father was. Or I will, uh, I will never be angry. People even will make contracts. I will not be a man. I will not be a woman. I will not be a grown up in order to not be my mother, in order to not be my father. It's like the deep understanding of a child is that the reason that things have gone wrong is because this person grew up and so they're not gonna do it. So those kinds of contracts can be in play. But contracts about rage are very common. I will not get angry. I will not let anyone know I'm angry. I will not know I'm angry myself. I will erase my rage all in the service there's such beautiful longings that are at the root of the contract you know to survive to save ourselves not to do harm in the world to be able to be different from the harm that we saw in our families of origin all kinds of things but then the problem when we diminish rage is the only way to diminish rage without linking it with love is to just turn down all the circuits and then we move into the area where there might be depression because all of our life energy has had to be turned down in order to manage that rage. So all of these kinds of discoveries come from Yak Pongsep's work. So the book takes us into those circuits of emotion and, and motivation, how they get entangled. I was working once with a woman who, um, who was a survivor of childhood, very severe childhood abuse. And she, she sat down beside me. We, we were doing the constellation form of work. And so we were working in a group with a bunch of people and 
And she sat down beside me. I was the facilitator. And I said, what's the gift you would like to give yourself today? She said, I'm 67 years old and I have not been unafraid since I was two. She says, I have been, I have been in fear every breathing moment of my life since I was two years old. And, um, and she said, I would like to, I would like to not live in fear anymore. And I'd really like to have a male partner because I'm terrified of men. And so in the constellation, we set up her, her circuits so that she could see them, that she could see her fear circuit and she could see that her fear circuit had completely, was completely hiding her sexuality circuit and was completely hiding her play circuit, which is the place of joy. And, and, and the, the fear circuit had a very good reason to be here because when she was three years old, she was badly hurt. And as we worked, we were working for just 10 minutes. It ended up being probably an hour, an hour and a half total. But 10 minutes in, I remember I turned to her and I said, how are you doing? And she said, I am not afraid. Oh. And it was like being able to see, you know, how the amygdala has no sense of time. So it makes really big experiences eternal. And so if we've been living in fear for 65 of our 67 years, then we, then we know, aha, this is an extended six decade flashback of to the moment of intense fear. And once the brain starts to see, oh, that was from the past. That was, that's, it makes perfect sense. Of course, I've been afraid for 60 years. Then there's a relaxation that comes and that came for her just seeing it outside of herself, there was a relaxation. She actually left that workshop and went and got in a really sweet relationship and sent me posts on (laughs) Facebook with pictures of her and her partner. And it was a very sweet piece of work. It was absolutely life-changing and profound. And the major thing had happened in the first 10 minutes of getting to see, oh, no wonder. Yeah. And again, just shining the light on it. Like, what was her wish? What is it that she wanted for herself? That gift. I love the way you worded it as a gift to herself. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. I recently did um, some EFT, some tapping work with Mm. a a professional. and, And sure enough, anger came up. I just... I never, I never had thought about rage and anger as being a part of me. And, um, and that was like an underlying current that was going on with something that was happening with me. So she suggested I buy a wiffle ball bat, which I actually ordered on Amazon. (laughs) And she said, just, just whack at something and release it. And and just as you talk through, you know, the, the mantras and, and it was very fascinating. I have yet to like really, really let it loose because mm-hmm. there's that part of me like you're talking about that mm-hmm. uh I turned that rage I, I turned that anger volume down like yeah. to zero yeah yeah so, yeah now you can now you can look at it you can say if I have a contract yeah I have a contract. <laughs> well that's why I'm so excited to get your book so <laughs> yeah <laughs> wonderful and so is it is it a um like a step by step. So you, as you read through, you you go through each of the steps that recommend yeah. in the chapter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's there's an outline of the process, and then it actually the outline of the process is introduced right away. But then the rest of the book is like 
what kinds of contracts might we have with anger? What kinds of contracts might we have that diminish joy? What kinds of contracts do we have that might? So then we've got Yak Pongsep's work, but we also have Stephen Porges' work. Yeah. And Stephen Porges' work is talking about the different states of the nervous system. How are we activating ourselves and keeping ourselves in sympathetic activation instead of letting ourselves be in the place that we come to with what Stephen Porges calls a neuroception of safety, where, where the neurons themselves say, ah, we, we're okay. We can, we can actually be our true selves. I always think about how we don't really get to be our true selves unless we're experiencing welcome. I almost like to say, instead of a neuroception of safety, that we need a neuroception of welcome because safety is kind of a low bar for me. <laughs> I might still be like really quiet, even though I feel sort of safe. But if I feel welcome and I know my voice is wanted and invited and enjoyed, then that's a different deal. That lets something else come forward for me. Yeah. And as you, as again, as you talked, I, I, I started thinking how, how trauma related so much of this is. I mean, the woman that you had talked about, how it related back to her being so hurt at three years old and mm -hmm. how so much of this, and I love it that it can be worked through so quickly. I mean, you talked about within 10 minutes, she was able to identify uh, and, and it took an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what a difference it made in her life. Yeah, and I think uh, sometimes people are like ripe plums that fall into the hand of the process, whatever process we're working with, that there's like a bump, and there they are. They're, they're like, you you just, I mean, it's sort of like uh, somebody else has been unscrewed, working on getting that lid untightened, you know, and, and right. the jar gets passed to us, and we're like, oh, here you go. Right. <laughs> Person's life energy spills out, and we're like, I did it. I am wonderful. I am great. But no, it's all those other people that were working on the jar lid before us. <laughs> right. And they look at you like, oh, wow, you're amazing. <laughs> Beautiful. Awesome. All right. So what else? Any other topics that you wanted to to dive into um well just to you know name self-sabotage that self-sabotage is really the easiest route in to unconscious contract work to think about what do you persist in doing even though it's not very good for you and doesn't serve your well-being like instead of doing the work you're supposed to do do you watch netflix that's self-sabotage instead of being on time or a little bit early for appointments, do you find yourself <laughs> not when you've been distracted by the oh, right. she whole different deal. <laughs> do you find yourself consistently showing up 15 or 20 minutes late? Right. I did this piece of work with a woman who was always procrastinating and, um, and, when we started to work, she said, you know, I really think that the very good reason that I'm always late is because when I was a teenager, I had a horrible, horrible uh, therapist who, who um, shamed me for being late so extensively that I made a contract never to be on time in order to spite him. And then she released, you know, she released the contract and had a sense of more ease and possibility. 
she didn't write to me afterwards, so I don't know if it uh, if it released her from it. But people often have like a physical sense of more freedom and more possibility. And and what I love the most about the contract work um, in the world of interpersonal neurobiology that Stephen, I mean that Daniel Siegel writes about so much. He, he writes that our brains are searching for integration, that our brains want to integrate, and that we don't know what's going to happen once they do integrate. So all kinds of really interesting things happen for people once they start to release contracts, because the contracts are binding them in a certain rigid space. And what, what really lights me up is what happens to us when we are no longer afraid of public speaking? What happens to us when we no longer believe that our voice should be kept hidden or our gifts should be uh, made sure never to see the light of day? And, and so, so the releasing of self-sabotage is like, a, it's, like we're, it's like we've got these marvelous tigers. Our life energy is all tigers in cages. What happens when we open the cages and the tigers with this lithe beauty just leap out of their cages with their full strength and power? It's just so fun to see people doing what lights them up. Yes. What a beautiful visual. I saw it all happening. <laughs> yeah. And I love, and again, self-sabotage. I, I think the, the words, the contracts, the voices, the, the lettering and the, the wording of those contracts really comes from others a lot of time. I mean, right. From people who, the uh, perpetrators who have hurt us, such as the therapist who, yeah who had heard this. So um, it's really, I mean, yes, it's self-sabotage, but it's almost with words of others. Am I correct in that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And that's yeah. part of, I mean, those discoveries are really a part of letting our brains truly make sense to us. If we say, well, of course I would do this. I do this because, and then you see what comes, you know? So, um, I had a very long journey, for example, with sugar, uh, a journey that uh, that still continues um, in many ways, but has become much less acute because there were there were so many layers of self sabotage, so many different ways that I used sugar. And what's so fun about working with uh, addictions? I mean, I know that sounds a little weird, but. Um, is that the substances that we choose have contracts with us. So what we know is that the brain makes our most familiar things and most important things ourself. So Yo-Yo Ma, I play the cello, but I play the cello very badly, but I love it. <laughs> but Yo-Yo Ma plays the cello, and you can see when Yo-Yo Ma is playing that the cello is a part of him, that it is, not dis it is not distinguishable from his body. And we can see in research MRIs that the body mapping includes the cello. It includes our cars too. So this is why when we get a rental car that's a different size than our own car, sometimes we'll bump into things or not be able to parallel park anymore because it's, we, we don't have this car made a part of ourselves but we make our addictions a part of ourselves as well. So if we're addicted to sugar, it's 
part of our body map. And so when, when the sugar begins to, to, to release, uh, when we begin, begin to give sugar a voice as a part of ourself, then it will have all kinds of lovely contracts with us. Uh, I, and most particularly like cho chocolate, like, but that, let's just get really specific. Chocolate covered marzipan. So, <laughs> so I, chocolate-covered marzipan, solemnly swear to you, Sarah, that I will take care of you. That's the first part of the addictions contract is I will take care of you. And then you describe, what do you, what do you need to do to take care of you, to take care of Sarah? I will take care of you. I will give you a sweet and nutty uh, textured, a uh, uh, free ticket away from reality into an alternate world that is kind to Sarah. And, um, and, no, and then the last part of the contracts, the addictions contracts are, no matter the cost to you. Right. <laughs> oh so my then, God. Yeah, yeah. So then we get to sort of be our essential self again here in this contract that a part of ourselves, chocolate-covered marzipan, has made with us. And then we get to say, do you want it? Sarah's essential self, do you want to keep that contract? Hmm, I don't need that one. I don't need that one. I'm starting to make a kind world for Sarah just right here. I release you from this contract. I revoke this vow. I give you my blessing to go help someone else. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, and it's so timely that you're talking about this because during this pandemic, how many friends and family members, particularly on social media that I've seen say, talk about how much weight they've gained or how they just have. have yeah, I think it's a pound a month, the national average throughout the United States. Yeah. And, and this is important because as the research of James A. Cohen shows us, we try to compensate for missing social support by increasing our blood glucose levels. And heck, you know, if anybody's like me, it's a nightmare of loneliness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I know I had gained 29 pounds. I've since adjusted. That was mm. a year ago. And, but mm. I, and it was, I was, I was missing my people. I'm a social person. And so yeah. I would just open that pantry and be like, Ooh, potato chips. Yeah. Those are Ooh, donuts. <laughs> yeah. And they did help. They raised no. your blood glucose levels. Right. Right. Well, yeah. And I, I've talked about that on the show before because my yeah. dad died from complications from diabetes. And so oh. I know I I've, I've said, I don't want to get diabetes. I, I, mm. I, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. And yet I still will go, Oh, little donut. <laughs> you know, I have that contract with that. Donut. Right. Right. Or that contract the donut might have like a contract with you to take care of you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and I, and I just, again, I love our conversations because I, I learned so much, but it, I can visualize it all and I see it happening with the donut. So yes. <laughs> Beautiful. So how do how do people find you? How do they get a hold of the, the book? Um, the book is available on all online booksellers and will be shipped on May 25th. Somebody okay. wrote and said they already had their copy, so it might even come earlier, but I don't know. Um, and uh, it was shipped on May 25th. And 
Um, the guided meditations in that book, just like in the first book, are available on the website, yourresonantself.com. And then there's a website, sarahpayton.com, that shows like all kinds of recordings and links to our podcasts and, um, and uh, a store with past webinars that I've done about all kinds of stuff from ranging from trauma healing to, um, to our relationship with food to contracts with addictions, all kinds of stuff. Wonderful. So that's there. But the most fun thing is the live classes, and and uh, and I hope folks get the book and enjoy the heck out of it. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm I again I'm I can't wait to get my copy and dive in. So yeah, beautiful. <laughs> well, as always, I just love having you here to talk to us and uh, yeah, teach us and radiate your beautiful gentle energy. And thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you, Terry. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And I'll spend the rest of the day tuning in to the possibility of, of joining you just imaginally in the sunshine and the beauty of, of, your, of your nature. Awesome. That would be wonderful. Well, I'll go back out on the bench. You can have a seat next to me. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And remember, until next time, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today to the Healing Place podcast with your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Terry, her mission, and the Hope for Healing journey, visit Terry's website at www.terrywellbrock.com. Thank you for liking, commenting, sharing, and offering your reviews on our YouTube channel, audio outlets, and Facebook page. And as Terry reminds us, until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself.